Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. Welcome to The God Solution Show, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled that you're tuned back in for the second part of our interview with Dr. Mike Lacona. If you missed last week's interview, go to GodSolutionShow.com to get that interview. Anyway, Dr. Lacona is a world-renowned Christian apologist. He's authored numerous books on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he teaches apologetics at Houston Baptist University. I'm excited to have him back on. Let's pick up right away with our interview from last week. So what are some of the common myths that people believe about the resurrection, and why are they wrong? Um, well... I don't know that I call them myths. I would call them just alternative or naturalistic explanations. Um, probably the most common one out there today, given by scholars, is that uh, the hallucination hypothesis that uh, the disciples, being grief-stricken, you know, experienced hallucinations of Jesus. They thought he had been raised from the dead, um, but they were just hallucinations. Now, sometimes they'll use the term uh, visions. That's probably more common. They rarely say hallucinations. They'll say vision. It's it's kind of a confusing term because you say, well, what do you mean by visions? Are they is that a hallucination? Or sometimes, like in some cases, you'll they'll say uh, experience within an altered state of consciousness or an ASC. Um, so it just sounds more sophisticated, and sometimes they want to avoid the term hallucination because it has uh, they say it has a pejorative uh, sense to it. But that's exactly what it is. You got to say, well, were these experiences objective? or subjective. Objective meaning they had a reality to them of some sort, a real. So, some, something actually happened. They saw something that really existed. That if Jesus appeared to them in a vision, an objective vision, then a live Jesus actually appeared to them in some sense, even if it were not within the space-time dimension, um, space-time continuum. Um, but if it's a subjective vision, well, that would be a hallucination or a dream, something like that, because there's not a reality beyond what's going on in the mind. So um, when they say visions or an altered state of consciousness, you know, don't be misled by that. They actually mean hallucinations. So um, um, that's the most popular one out there, I would say. Um, they will also give something... Uh, quite frequently to say, well, when they said Jesus appeared to them, um, he didn't really appear to them. That was just a device that they used in order to confer authority on someone, just to, uh, one of the church leaders to say that Jesus appeared to them. And to say that he was raised from the dead, that didn't mean, they, they didn't mean to communicate that he had been raised in a literal physical sense. What that meant was that uh, Jesus had been exalted in heaven as a Jewish martyr. And it was no different than it was for other Jewish martyrs. You could have said that they had been raised from the dead as well. They had been resurrected. So I'd say that those are probably two of the most popular ones given by scholars today, by, by skeptical scholars. Now, you know, what you hear on the Internet or your next-door neighbor or uh, a fellow college student 
you know, might be a, entirely different. But that's what I'd say are the two main explanations given by skeptical scholars today. And how would you respond to some of that? Well, in, in terms of saying it was a metaphor, they really didn't mean these things. I'd say, well, there's, there's really no evidence for that. There's no evidence that, first of all, that they invented an appearance or attributed an appearance to someone to give this person authority uh, in, in the first century church. Um, you know, for example, the first appearance is to women, and yet we have no evidence from the early church that women served as leaders and had authority in the early church. Um, you, uh, in, in terms of what about the Emmaus disciples, you know, in, in Luke's gospel, uh, the road, while Jesus appeared to them in Luke 24, you've, it names one as Cleopas. Well, we don't know anything about Cleopas. There's no mention of him as though he were a leader in the early church. And the other disciple to whom Jesus appeared on the road to Emmaus is left anonymous. seems kind of counterproductive that you would want to invent an appearance to confer authority on someone and then not mention their name. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. what about the appearance to the 500? We don't know of any authoritative group. Uh, called the more than 500. So there's no reason, there's no, not a scrap of evidence to suggest that appearances were invented to confer authority on the alleged precipients. In terms of being a metaphor to just say Jesus was exalted in heaven, there's no evidence for that either. Um, I would challenge someone to give one clear example of that occurring uh, in the early church or predating that. Um, and it's, it's really easy to refute because our earliest writer, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, 20, or chapter 15, verse 20, says that Christ is the first fruit of the dead. In other words, he's the first to be raised from the dead with a resurrection body. So how can you turn and say that the early Christians were claiming that Jesus is just simply the last Jewish martyr to have stepped in a long line, the last Jew, Jewish martyr to step in a long line of Jewish martyrs, um, and that you know, but that's what resurrection meant, that he had been exalted by God as a Jewish martyr, uh, but he was just one of many. How can, how can he say that when Paul, the earliest Christian, and one who we can confirm was teaching the same gospel message as the Jerusalem apostles who had walked with Jesus, and Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of the dead, of those who sleep. I mean, that's easily refuted. Um, you don't have any accounts within the early Christian literature that would make such a suggestion. Everything goes against it. So that one's easily refuted. In terms of hallucinations, that's also easily refuted. That was refuted uh, more than 100 years ago, and it's been resurrected, you might say, by some skeptics, because they're, they're not reading this literature like that. They're just coming up with these things in order to try to debunk the resurrection, um, not realizing that what they're saying has already been refuted about a century before. And... Um, First of all, uh, what we know about hallucinations is they're not collective, they're not contagious. In other words, they're not group experiences for the most part. Um, if they are experienced in groups, which we don't have any solid evidence that they are, but if they are, if they are such an experience is extremely rare, if not impossible. Um, our experience of hallucinations or, or what research has, been, has done over more than a century of work in the mental health profession has shown that um, hallucinations, the, the group most likely to experience hallucination are senior adults bereaving the loss of a loved one. And approximately 50% of them, in, in multiple reports, an average of 50% of them experience a hallucination of some sort of their loved ones. But only 7% of them experience 
a visual hallucination. So consider that and, and think, okay, 7%? Well, what percentage of the disciples are said to experience visual hallucination? 100%. Now, you compare that with the research in the mental health profession of 7%, you say, well, 100% is unthinkable there. And then you look at the group appearances. Well, there are at least three of them. Well, group appearances are extremely rare, if not impossible. And then you look and you say, Paul wasn't grieving. Paul hated the Christian church. He hated Jesus. And he was out to destroy the movement Jesus had started. So Jesus would have been the last person in the world that Paul would have expected or wanted to see. Um, So it doesn't explain the appearance to Paul. Hallucinations don't explain the empty tomb either. You still have to say, how did the tomb become empty? So the hallucination hypothesis, as a historical hypothesis, is one of the worst ones out there when you assess it using strictly controlled historical method. So um, both the hallucination and the metaphor hypotheses, they just don't work. They're terrible historical hypotheses. So Ehrman has a couple others. A couple of the ones that Ehrman uses would be begging the question. He says that resurrections don't happen, therefore I don't care what the evidence says, it must not have been yeah. a resurrection, which is a logical fallacy. We can't even argue like that. But recently he argued that since 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't refer to Joseph of Arimathea, we could extrapolate that Jesus was never buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, therefore there never was an empty tomb because there never was a burial in the first place, that he was just left out to rot in the fields, basically. Craig Evans came on the show a couple years ago and just obliterated that argument. But I wanted to ask you what you think about Ehrman's wide range of reactions. It doesn't sound like he's providing a concise and coherent rebuttal of the resurrection. It almost sounds like he's kind of grasping at straws a little bit. Do you agree, or what's going on with Ehrman's response here? Yeah, I... I, I First of all, you mentioned Craig Evans. Craig Evans is just a brilliant, brilliant New Testament scholar, and I'm honored to be one of his colleagues at HBU. Um, but yeah, I think Herman is is just very weak in this area. Um, I mean, you kind of said that in, in our recent uh, dialogue on the historical reliability gospels. Look, these things are just impossible, so we can't believe them. Well, they're not impossible. I mean, that's a, a metaphysical judgment there, and so what you're allowing is your philosophy to guide your historical investigation, whereas the data ought to guide your historical investigation. And if the historical conclusion is in conflict with your philosophy, your worldview, it may be time to change your worldview. Um, but, but so Ehrman does things backward. You know, he just said, well, this is impossible. You know, a lot of times he'll say, look, he'll say, uh, historians must choose the least probable explanation. Uh, a miracle, by its very definition, is the least probable explanation, and therefore a historian could never choose a miracle as what most probably occurred. And that's just getting things backward and mixed up as well. I mean, why should we consider a miracle the least probable explanation? Um, you could say that an event like a guy coming back from the dead is the least probable explanation if we're requiring that person to come back from the dead by natural causes. Yeah, I would agree that's the least probable explanation. Uh, A person is not, a corpse is not going to come back to life when left to itself. All right, 
by by itself and by natural law and natural processes once it's dead. But nobody's claiming that it came back, Jesus' corpse came back to life because when it was left to itself. The claim was that God raised Jesus from the dead, that it was a supernatural event, and if God was involved, then all bets are off regarding natural law. It, it doesn't tell us... Natural law doesn't tell us anything pertaining to whether God's hand can intervene and alter the normal and natural course of events. Um, so, and I pointed out in this dialogue with Ehrman when he made such a, uh, an argument. So let, let's suppose that I'm lecturing, and I'm lecturing on Islam, let's say, and I'm, I'm arguing that Islam is a false religion, that Muhammad was a false prophet. And some Muslim terrorists come in, and they execute me and, and behead me on the spot. And someone dials 911 in the auditorium during, while this is going on, the police, you hear sirens coming, and the terrorists flee. And everybody runs out of the auditorium screaming, and um, an hour later, they're outside of the auditorium. Police, the media are interviewing people, and I come walking out of the auditorium with my head attached and in great health. And everybody's stunned, and I say, well, God brought me back to life because he wants me to communicate that the gospel of Jesus is true and that you should believe. And then I start to go around to people, and I say, hey, you're so-and-so, right? Well, when I was in heaven just a few moments ago, I talked to your grandmother, and she says to say this to you, and you know that thing that you lost about two decades ago and you can't find? If you go look over in so-and-so, that's where it is. She put it there. And I do things like this with maybe a half dozen people, and it all turns out to be true. Well, that would suggest that what I was saying was God bringing me back from the dead, that, it would, that, that that was true. That would be a miracle. Now, according to Bart's explanation, that uh, you could never say that that happened because it's the least probable explanation. Um, if a, you'd have to say that I was not alive at that point. Um, because that would require a miracle. You'd have to say that a hallucination, no matter a mass hallucination, no matter how improbable, and no matter even if I lived for another 30 years, you'd have to say I was not alive. It was just a long-lasting mass hallucination because my coming back to life would be a miracle, and that's the least probable explanation. And of course, that's nonsense. Um, so, I mean, these are just, I think they're weak arguments based on a flawed philosophy of history that, that leads Ehrman to come up with these kind of arguments. And, of course, I don't want to just focus on him. He's not the only one to do that. There are plenty of others who are given the same sort of argument. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. Find out more about The God Solution Show at godsolutionshow.com. Okay, so Ehrman also claims that there are hundreds of thousands of textual variants in the New Testament manuscripts. First of all, is he correct? And if so, how does this affect the reliability of the New Testament? Well, I would say that Berman is probably correct that there are several hundred thousand. In fact, uh, some have estimated, I think he said it, between 300 and 400,000 discrepancies, variants, within the manuscripts. Uh, nobody's ever counted them, all right? But that seems to be an estimate, and I've talked to Dan Wallace about it. He's, a, of course, an expert on textual criticism. And he says that's probably true. So I'm fine with that, okay? But we have to consider, look, if we just had one manuscript of, of the New Testament, one manuscript, there'd be no variance, would there? 
<laughs> so you'd say we have one, we have absolutely no variants. The reason we have so many variants, Nate, is because we have so many manuscripts. The um, we've got, according to our, our latest statistics, 5,839 Greek manuscripts alone of the New Testament. Um, and then you've got tens of thousands of, uh, of uh, manuscripts in other languages. And then you've got quotations from the Old Testament um, in uh, you know, more than a million of them from the early church fathers. So when you and a lot of times they're they're paraphrasing, they're just bringing it back from memory. Um, they're not directly quoting; they're alluding to to a, a text in the New Testament. So of course you're going to have variances, and you're going to have lots of them, thousands of them. But Ehrman himself acknowledges in his book uh, misquoting Jesus that this really doesn't change much in the New Testament documents. Because through textual criticism, we can get back to a text which is virtually pure. Uh, we can get back to what scholars now refer to as the earliest text, meaning the earliest text scholars can reconstruct, and that text would go back to around the first, the late first century. So, can we prove that that's what was originally written? Well, you know, there might be three decades in between those, but it's given all the manuscript evidence we have, the chances that the autographs, if you want to talk about them in that way, said something that was essentially different than the earliest text that scholars can reconstruct. You know, you, you're making a, an argument based purely on conjecture and not on any kind of data that we have. So we can pretty much trust that the text of the New Testament that we have today is essentially what the authors originally wrote. I was reading uh, Nabil Karishi recently, one of your friends, and he was mm -hmm. talking about how in the Quran we have indistinguishable error. Uthman burnt all the variant copies of the Quran early in the history of Islam and consolidated it all and kept one standard version. So we really don't know what's accurate. And there are people from that time period saying he got the wrong one. So there's indistinguishable error. We can't find any variants because they burnt all the variants. And he compares that to Christianity, where we have distinguishable error. We have so many copies that whenever there is error, we can find it, and we can compare it to the other copies. So the variants, it almost turns out, turn out to be a good thing. We can find where the, the problems are, and uh, that's not the case with other ancient manuscripts. Correct? Yeah, well, um, I would say that with the New Testament, that is, that is largely true. I mean, there are several instances in the New Testament when we're not sure what the original said, but they don't uh, impact any gospel doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, they rarely impact any major doctrine. Um, it's usually a matter of spelling and word order. Um, in fact, Dan Wallace has said, you know, something that would be a viable alternative and that impacts the meaning, you only have about one quarter of one percent of all the variances in the New Testament. Impact the meaning, and it's a viable reading. In other words, the pedigree of it is pretty good, and we really don't know what it, what it says. So one example would be 1 John 1, 4, where uh, certain manuscripts say, uh, we are writing these things so that your joy may be full. Other readings say, we are writing these things in order that our joy may be full. Well, what did the original say? We have no idea. But it, so it impacts the meaning, I mean, not any doctrine, but it impacts the meaning 
and the variance in their readings are good enough that we just don't know. So that's one example of the one quarter of 1% of variances that have a viable reading, alternative reading, and it impacts the meaning. Um, so that's what we have with the New Testament. When it comes to the Quran, it's something I, I really haven't spent, spent a lot of time on, but I do know that there are many variances even today. If you go to the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, inside of the dome, uh, they have Quranic quotes from the Quran around there. And that was from the year 692, so we're writing with, that's within 60 years of the death of Muhammad. And they differ from what we have in the present Quran. Uh, in the 1970s, you had a cache, a huge cache of manuscripts of the Quran that were discovered in a mosque in Yemen when it was being remodeled, over 10,000 pages of manuscripts. And they're dated to the 8th century. Muhammad lived in the 7th century. They're dated to the 8th century, and there are thousands of variations in them from what we have in the current Quran. So, yeah, they, they have the same problem. <laughs> um, but they, I would agree with Nabil there that it's, it's um, you know, the thing about Uthman, he did destroy. He burned manuscripts that disagreed with what he had. So we have far, far less to uh, compare with with the Quran than we do the New Testament. All right, so coming back to the resurrection and the historical reliability of the Gospels and the Gospel accounts of the resurrection, can we believe the Gospel references about the resurrection? Well, I believe so. If you're, if you're going to look and you say, mm -hmm. you know, who were the Gospels written by? What were their sources? Well, we can see, you know, if we, if we look at the sources, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, we touched on it just a, very briefly, they were responsible um, in their selection of sources that they used. For the most part, they're based on eyewitness testimony. Now, there are certainly differences in the way they narrate the resurrection narratives, and you know, I've looked at them very carefully. In fact, I, I uh, give quite a lengthy analysis of the differences, the discrepancies in the resurrection narrative in my forthcoming book. Um, and there are only a few of them that I find difficult to explain on what's going on here. Um, for the most part, you've got a consistency throughout the resurrection narrative. Sunday morning, the women get there very early. They find it's the tomb's empty. They see angels, um, and later on they see Jesus. Jesus appears to others, um, and they, he appears to them over a period of days, if not weeks, before he leaves them. So... We find a, a consistency throughout the story. Some of the chronology is different within them, um, and the way things happen, you do see certain compositional devices being used. Luke certainly uses compression. Um, you see all kinds of different uh, compositional devices that were common to ancient history writers of that day. But, again, when you consider the sources that they were using, uh, and we're talking eyewitnesses, especially like what they mark with Peter or uh, John, you know, the Gospel of John using eyewitness testimony, Luke using eyewitnesses, and things like that. You know, we, we ought to can take that into consideration and say, you know, that's pretty good, those sources. And then we see Paul, who writes beforehand, he talks about a bodily, physically resurrected Jesus. He doesn't mention an empty tomb, but he's not writing a narrative of the resurrection. He's addressing questions about resurrection. And, and he talks about the physical 
what, what resurrection is. It is a physical event. It is the resurrection of a corpse. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says that we will be raised the way Christ was raised. So if we're going to be raised physically, um, it's going to be a corporeal event at the, on the last day when Jesus returns. And that means Jesus was raised corporeally um, in his body, uh, a resurrected body, a resurrected corpse. That's what it was. So you see a lot of consistency, appearances, things like this of the risen Jesus to others. I think we have every reason to believe that the resurrection narrative in the Gospels are historically reliable. Does that mean that every detail happened precisely as described? No. Uh, could there be some conjecture involved? Yes. Could there be some um, uh, artistic license involved? Absolutely. And we definitely see that going on throughout the Gospels and even in the resurrection narrative. But other authors did that as well. And the same kind of differences, most of the differences you find in the resurrection accounts you find in other ancient literature, the way authors report events as well, like the assassination of Julius Caesar and what happens afterward, or the Lupercalia festival and uh, crowns being, uh, laurels, diadems being found on statues of Caesar in February of 44 BC and what happened around those events. Various ancient authors report these things differently, different chronological order, they take artistic license. But it doesn't change, even though you get discrepancies in peripheral details, it doesn't change the core, the central teachings of those narratives. So should we believe the resurrection? And if so, what does this mean for us? Why is it significant? Well, we should believe the resurrection. We've got eyewitness testimony uh, to people seeing the risen Jesus. We know, and you know, it's too much to get into in such little time, but the majority of scholars, even critics, uh, Skeptical scholars agree, and I'm talking about skeptical scholars who have focused on this and really spent time on this issue, people like Bart Ehrman, people like John Dominic Crossan, um, skeptical scholars like this acknowledge that the, shortly after Jesus' death, the disciples had experiences in which they were sincerely persuaded the risen Jesus had appeared to them. Okay. So we have to say what led them to have these experiences, or, or these, this conviction. What were these? What was the nature of these experiences? Either Jesus appeared to them, or he did not appear to them. If he didn't appear to them, how do you account for these experiences? Hallucinations don't work. Delusions don't work. You, you look at all the possible naturalistic uh, explanations, they don't work. The only one that really works is the resurrection hypothesis that Jesus rose from the dead. Again, I get a, a, a lot of this in depth. Listeners can you know, view some of my debates on risenjesus.com, or they can read some of my books on the topic. What so, does it mean to us? Well, if Jesus rose from the dead, it means Christianity is true. It confirms his claims to be God's uniquely divine Son, who came to give his life for us, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us and that by putting our trust in him, we can have a relationship with God, a restored relationship with God, salvation, forgiveness of sin, eternal life that begins right now, that we can have that relationship with God and heaven later on. It means that any wrongs that are done to us now, God is going to make right, because he is the judge, the just judge, and he's merciful, but in the end he's going to bring everything and make everything right. And it means that we can see our loved ones again. My mom and dad died within the last three years. I have the confidence that I'm going to see them again because he promises eternal life to those who will follow him. 
And so it gives us meaning. It gives us great and deep and lasting purpose in life and can give us peace about our future. That's what the resurrection means. Well, thank you so much for your work, and thank you uh, for all you do for the kingdom. It is not unnoticed. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. God bless you and what you're doing. Hey, you bet. We'll talk to you later. All right, take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed all that Lacona had to say today. The evidence for the resurrection is outstanding. If you're at a point where you're willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, I would ask you to do that right now, verbalizing your faith, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I ask you to come into my life as Savior and Lord to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. I hope that you'll go to godsolutionshow.com and leave us some comments about the show, check out past interviews, things like that. And while you're there, consider partnering with us to expand the ministry of the God Solution Show. Tune back in next week for our interview with Dr. Mike Behe, one of the pillars of the intelligent design movement. It'll be an incredible interview. You do not want to miss it. Well, thanks so much for listening. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Happy birthday, sweet Kara. You've been listening to The God Solution with Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.